0: So we're going to look next week at the time in which the Lord will put away with Antichrist and his entire dominion. And so we're going to look exclusively this week at the identity of Antichrist, or put more particularly, who is the Antichrist? And if you had the, uh, the life experience of growing up within the church as a young person, uh, and perhaps one especially that had a, a, a church that talked about the end times a lot, uh, talking about Antichrist or the end times uh, might be uh, an old hat for you and presented uh, particularly uh, perhaps some of your worst nightmares as a child. You know, Growing up in a premillennial millennial uh, pre-trib church, the uh, greatest fear of my childhood was that my parents would be raptured and I would be left all alone uh, with the family dog and only to stare down Antichrist in the days ahead. And that wasn't uh, bettered at all by uh, eating up all the left-behind books as soon as they came off the press, uh, and where we find that Antichrist is Nikolai Carpathia, and he does all sorts of exciting things. Now, that can bring to a, a sense of, depending on if that was your experience or if you were saved from all that and were saved later in life and didn't have the terror of that instilled in you, we're all interested in knowing who is Antichrist. It's held out in the scriptures in many different places. We are interested in who he is, and in many ways, interested as we see events unfolding before our eyes or in the culture around us, wondering as we kind of read our Bible, and then we have in our other hand perhaps our phone reading the newspaper, and we're reading uh, do they match up at all, is there any sort of correspondence to what I see on the news or what I hear, and we sometimes wonder whether that's the case, and today we see that the scriptures here call us not to be shaken by reports of the day of the Lord already being here, but still it being something important to consider. And I want to look in Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, where we see the scriptures call us to soberly wait for the day of the Lord, being careful to mark and avoid antichrist. So let us rightly judge between truth and error, clinging to Christ our head. And I want to look at this in a variety of questions this afternoon. want to look at what is Antichrist, secondly, how to identify Antichrist, thirdly, where to find Antichrist, fourth, who is Antichrist, and then finally, why does our confession say the Pope is Antichrist? So that's where I want to go this afternoon, and we have our work cut out for us, Uh, but we'll attempt to answer that question then of who is the Antichrist from the text before us. So first, uh, what is Antichrist? If you look at verse 3 with me, we see let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, immediately calls them to mark or to, to notice though this man of lawlessness at the time of his revelation, and that he is that son of destruction. That son of destruction. In many ways, when we think about Antichrist, the scriptures here and we'll see some other verses later speak about Antichrist as the embodiment of perdition and opposition to Christ upon earth, that he's in focused in one person, the enemies of Christ, and that he, in that way is spoken of as the figurehead of that entire system. And as we see that, not only is he the one who is in opposition to Christ. In this particular way, certainly we all have that in our sin. Uh, sin is any lack of conformity to the Word of God or transgression of that Word of God. And that We, in that way, certainly are opposed to the Lord when we are in sin. Yeah, speaking of something more, something of a practiced, uh, set-up opposition to Christ. One that is seeking to set him asunder and to place himself in a set, as we'll see here in a while. But furthermore, we see that this Antichrist, if you look in verse 9, is also working with Satan. The one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders. That Antichrist, then, is something beyond just the sin that lies within you and I. But the particular person being spoken of here is someone who is not an angel of light, but rather someone who is working with the devil. And so then he is that rightly understood opposition to Christ in a single person. And I'd like to look at our confession of faith, if you want to look at the Trinity hymnal in front of you, the smaller of the two blue books, on page 684. I want to highlight this simply because this particular text, that is 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 to 10 especially, are footnoted by our confession here and by other Reformed confessions. And really, the language that's found in the fourth paragraph is unique to ours, but I want to highlight this now so that we can think through it, especially as we think about what is Antichrist. In the fourth paragraph of our confession, page 684 of the hymnal, says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Now, for our purposes today, neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. So, Antichrist is... Using the same language in our confession, if you notice, man of sin and son of perdition and exalting himself. We'll see those words laid out again in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and so really it's an explanation of the passage found in the fourth paragraph. And so to rightly understand the fourth paragraph, we need to understand this text. So turning back to the scriptures, the summation then of what Antichrist is, is that he is in one person, all opposition to Christ, bound up under the name of Antichrist. So I see, what is Antichrist when I say, "How to identify Antichrist?" And Paul helps us understand that as we move along. Notice in verse four. First, we identify Antichrist because he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. that he exalts himself that he is setting himself up as this one who is above all other gods, that he's above all other people, and he is not exalting someone else but himself properly. He's not pointing us to someone else but considering himself. That's the son of destruction who is coming and who will cause many to be deluded. If you'd like to keep your finger here and turn over to the book of Daniel, we see that this is highlighting really something that was found in the prophetic material that Daniel held out for us. I want to look at Daniel chapter 7, speaking about the one who exalts himself. Again, we won't get much into these verses simply because of time. But notice, it's speaking of this one who will arise in the last days. It says in verse 25 of Daniel 7, He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. and He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. That Speaking of this Antichrist, then, of this one who is against Christ, he is the one who is not only exalting himself, where, as Daniel says, he will speak out against the Most High, that we mark him as one who is the center of that opposition to Christ, of raising himself up, but also that he will additionally oppress the church. Daniel puts it this way, he and wear down the saints of the highest one. That Antichrist then not only exalts himself, but wages war against the church, because he is waging war against, against her Savior. So turning back to Second Thessalonians, the two marks then that we highlight along the way of, of the Antichrist that we have seen so far is that he not only exalts himself in a uh, unique way. Again, we're not speaking in the way that we would oftentimes together saying, um, you know, brother or sister, I sinned. I thought of myself too highly and I exalted myself where I should not and I should have humbled myself. We're speaking about one who is systematically doing that and seeking to replace Christ, not in a, a one-time sort of sin, but as a high-handed, perpetual state of affairs of opposition to Christ. So turning back to Second Thess, if you're not already there, notice again that he is going to oppress the church. And if you see what he, he speaks of in verse 8, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end that appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs of false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. And furthermore, we see in verse 4 that he's exalting himself again. But uh, this particular one then is going to oppress the church. And there's two ways that we need to think about this to be able to better identify oppression. Uh, there's the, the really uh, easy one to identify of uh, really obvious oppression, or we might say overt oppression. If we see someone uh, exalting themselves and they're imprisoning Christians, they're putting them to death, uh, that's really easy to identify. We say, uh, there's Antichrist, uh, there's someone who's oppressing the church. And in many ways, uh, that's uh, a much safer sort of uh, person to deal with uh, because they are not insidious. Uh, They're not inserting themselves into something and not being obvious, but rather, uh, they are making very clear their intentions. It's not to say that they're not against the Lord or they're not dangerous, that we should not mark them, but it's easy to identify. And yet, here we see that this Antichrist, in verse 4, takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God, that this oppression then that Daniel 7 says this person will do is going to be set up within the very church uh, that has claimed the name of the Lord, or as it says, in the temple of God. I think that's more of what we might think of or I'd like to consider as covert oppression or something that's much more difficult to ascertain, where we're seeing that it's just the, the drip, 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 of the water upon the rock that eventually wears it away. Many times, then, Antichrist in this way, we might identify him as setting up laws within the church that God did not command, such as Paul says elsewhere of those who would say, do not taste, do not touch, etc. He says that they have the appearance of godliness, but have no benefit of putting to death the flesh. That's the activity of Antichrist. And yet, in this way, it's much more difficult because it sounds good. Oh, you know, brother or sister, if we simply uh, wouldn't touch the fruit in the garden, if Eve had just left it alone, hadn't touched the tree at all, would have been fine. As the devil so cleverly asked her if the Lord had told her not to touch the tree, not to eat of it, she says not even to touch it. In this way, not only does Antichrist set up these laws and legislate against the Lord, but also... He subjects the consciences of Christians to his whims rather than to the Word of God as he sets up all these powers, etc., that come in the last days. We see in verse 11 of what happens to those who were only notionally Christian. Verse 11 For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. In order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So Antichrist comes along, he oppresses the church. He does so either overtly at times, that we've heard of in times past, or uh, covertly as well, where he flays the consciences of Christians to his whims rather than to the word of God. And Antichrist does all of this under the banner, that is the covert oppression, under the banner of doing things God's way. And for the glory of God it can be very sneaky and very tricky in that way. And many, as a, if you've read much of the Puritan literature, you know that on this point then, they were very fond of throwing the phrase Antichrist out in all their works. Uh, you have uh, lunch at the wrong time, uh, that could be Antichrist. You show up the church at the wrong time, could be Antichrist again, or let alone if you start them in on the Pope. But one of them, our, our brother William Kiffin, who is one of the original signers of our confession, speaking about Antichrist, does have this helpful point about the insidious nature of the one who opposes Christ. He says, quote, It is a sad thing of consequence to consider how we have been kept under blindness and darkness, although not totally, yet in a great measure, in regard of such truths as do immediately strike at Antichrist and his false power, as namely this great truth, Christ the king of his church, and that Christ hath given this power to his church, not to a hierarchy, neither to a national presbytery, but to a company of saints in a congregational way. If you catch what Kiffin's saying there, he's saying it is Antichrist to set up church power in any way other than what Christ has said. So that's, we might say, lowercase a antichrist, but that antichrist as an overall system, as this one that we speak of here in our text as that man of lawlessness, is speaking of all of that under the aegis of one person, and that this person then is insidiously inserting each of these laws to not only bring exaltation to himself, but also to oppose the church and to lead many into error. And so we need to be careful in identifying Antichrist that we rightly discern and look for him, not just the flashy things that we would see of an entire church is snuffed out because of oppression, but the more dangerous of what could even occur within any given church, that there would be oppression introduced as Antichrist raises himself up against the Most High. So, we've seen that Antichrist not only exalts himself, he oppresses the church, and we see then that, in summary, Antichrist is seeking to receive the obedience and worship of the church in concert with Satan. We see that very clearly, if you'd like to look over at Revelation 13 with me, when it speaks of those last days. I'd like to look at the first eight verses. And I want to highlight a couple of items along the way, which will reinforce what we've already looked at and kind of summarize of how to identify Antichrist. 13, verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast, which And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. So we see John, in writing what he has seen and heard, recalls or tells us of this one who would come in the last days. That he will be given power by Satan himself. And furthermore, that he will exercise great authority, not not only upon the nations, but especially over those that would worship him we see that they follow after the beast giving worship to him, using the language of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, of this great apostasy that will occur in the last days, when it would seem that all true religion is forsaken, except for those whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so this Antichrist here in our passage in Revelation, not only has all that given to him, but also that he makes war or oppresses the saints, verse 7. And that the outcome of his rule for the short period of time is that all those who are written, out, whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, worship him. So, Antichrist then, speaking of that particular person, is looking towards one at the final end of the age of, we might say, an eschatological Antichrist. And turning back to Second Thessalonians chapter two, our passage then is looking and describing of what Antichrist looks like. And we find much in common with Revelation 13. And yet, Revelation 13 has in view a, a particular person, as does Second Thessalonians 2, but there is something additional to our text in Second Thessalonians that will have more in common with how our confession interprets it. So we've seen, in, in summary, that what Antichrist is, that location of opposition to Christ— briefly how to identify Antichrist, and I want to look at where to find Antichrist, where to find Antichrist. If you ever played the game, uh, Where's Waldo, or had some of those books as a kid? Uh, You need to find Waldo. He's in this group of people, a bunch of people that don't really look like him, and you need to know where to find him. If we tell you he's in the bottom left hand of the page, it's much easier to solve. But in this particular section, and in thinking of Antichrist, how do we find him? Where do we find him? Verse 4 tells us, who opposes and exalts himself above every so called God or object of worship, so he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. To put it simply, he's going to put himself where there is the name of Christ displayed as a church, as we would say. He's not found in the halls of power in any given capital city. He's not found in the legislative bodies. He's not found in any other group that we might like to say. Instead, he's very interested in coming into the church and displaying himself as another Christ or Antichrist. We find him here, not specifically in this congregation, but in the given church of Christ. That's where Antichrist will be found especially. He sets himself up in this way. Thus, Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, tells them in verse 3 to not be deceived, and that they might understand of the one who comes telling lies that the day of the Lord has already come, to mark such a one as Antichrist, as that man of sin, and to so to be opposed to him. And so they need to be on guard, as do we, because we find Antichrist where the Lord's name should be lifted high. So we've seen what Antichrist is, how to identify Antichrist, where to find him, and I want to move on to who is Antichrist. Who is Antichrist? So we've seen all these number of things, and we may then, if we had a fellowship meal time together, we could have a, uh, no doubt, a very engaging debate about who best identifies as Antichrist, and perhaps someone would have, you know, it's this person and someone else would say It's this person. So it's important then, in thinking through, we have all these categories to consider of how then do we summarize it to say, who is that Antichrist, that man of lawlessness? And I think one category we need to have is capital A Antichrist versus lowercase a Antichrist. There's a difference between the eschatological or the final Antichrist spoken of here in 2 Thessalonians and in Revelation 13, and with those who, in a lesser sense, are against the Lord, but not to the same degree. I'd like to look at two verses in John's epistles. If you'd like to look at 1 John chapter 2, with me we see that the Apostle, as he has written in Revelation at length about Antichrist, he writes in his epistle... That he wrote at another time concerning not just capital A Antichrist, but lowercase a Antichrist as well. And it's reflected, if you're reading in the New American Standard, in that way. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Continuing on. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they are all—that they all are not of us. Two things to point here, to point out in, in these two verses: first, of the distinction between Antichrist, that the singular Antichrist is coming, and the plurality. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. There's a greater sense of Antichrist, and there's lesser Antichrists that come along and oppose the Lord, but do so not as that final one of the last day variety, but to a lesser extent. Secondly, we see that these individuals, or we're not going to find them in Buddhism. We're not going to find them in some other sort of religion. They're not atheists that started that way. But rather that they have come out from the church, verse nineteen, and so they are antichrist in that way, and that they were never truly of us. They were opposed to Christ. And as he says it in this particular point, he continues to highlight that in his second epistle. If you look at second John verse seven, he continues to say that not only are there those who have gone out, but he dials in even further what he means by that. Notice what he says to them. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. So we see then that there's this Antichrist. He has this uh, deceptive spirit, but also that there are many of them. And so turning back to 2 Thessalonians, The reason why this category of capital A antichrist versus lowercase a antichrist is that we might discern between the one who is coming at the end of the age and the ones that we might find in our garden variety antichrist that lives next door, so to speak. That he is still operating, that is, the garden variety in a way that is opposed to Christ, but he does so not as the end of the age sort of way. So in this way, then, when we think of who is Antichrist, we're saying, well, now there are already many that have already come into the world, and they have died, and now there are still more that are in the world. And we're speaking of this way, and so we can appropriately say about particular uh, issues or particular persons, um, that person is, lowercase a, Antichrist. I want to suggest that as a way to do it, family meals or something, something has some sort of false doctrine, and you say, well, that's antichrist." Uh, it's not what we're speaking of as a way to put others down, but rather to think about, is this person submitting to Christ, the head of the church, in the way that he is orderly organizing his congregation to be according to his mind? And to do anything else is to be antichrist. If you recall the quote I read by William Kiffin just a few minutes ago, he says to order the church in any way, according to the mind of Christ, or any other way, is Antichrist. Because he said not only is that would that be according to the Pope, uh, not only according to the Anglicans, and not even, he would even throw the Presbyterians under the bus, that we have to do exactly as the Lord has commanded. In this simple way that he has set up the church, according to his mind, and so our confession then, And drawing all this together in paragraph four of chapter 26 is going to include both elements, both the eschatological Antichrist, or the system opposed to the Lord, and to the lesser extent, those who would also oppose Christ, as William Kiffin so colorfully put it for us in the quote stating of those who would set up the church in any other way. And so who is Antichrist. He is that man of lawlessness, that man of sin. And so, now for the the part that we'll spend the rest of our time considering, and perhaps the uh, most exciting part of the paragraph, I mean that uh, tongue-in-cheek, of course, is that why does the Second London say that the Pope is Antichrist? Why does it say that the Pope is Antichrist? If you recall, the paragraph reads of our Confession, Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist that man of sin and son of perdition. So, our confession locates this man of lawlessness exclusively in the person of the Pope of Rome as Antichrist. And uh, lest we think that our confession is something special, uh, this is pretty much uh, just normal for Protestants, whether you be Lutheran, Reformed, etc. You look in their confessional documents, almost all of them uh, list the Pope as Antichrist. Uh, it was just uh, sort of a common thing at that time. And we'll get into a little bit of why that would be. But it's important then, and, and if you were reading in the handout that we have available and have passed out at other times uh, that uh, James Runnahan has written in his commentary on our confession, he notes that the claim that the Pope is the Antichrist, that man of sin, it's not uh, eschatological. He's not speaking of the end times, primarily our confession. Rather, it's making a, an ecclesiastical sort of comment and commitment, speaking of that way. For the language of the Pope being Antichrist immediately follows the discussion of Christ as head of the church. He's not talking about the end times, and I think in many ways, if you read many of our modern commentaries, uh, those that have been written in the last... 150 years or so, most of them will deride the sort of comments that the Puritans are going to make, and I can understand why they're doing so to a certain extent, but I think overall they're missing the point of what our confession is saying, and and I do think it's a fine point. If you notice in our passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when it speaks of the man of lawlessness, it says, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction whereas our Confession speaks of it with a different word in front. It says, Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin. It's not making the case that he is the Antichrist, or the man of sin, but that. And if you want to hear many more arguments about that, commend the reading that James Renahan has written on that particular point. And there should still some, be some available uh, if you have not already picked that up. But for our purposes then, in our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Antichrist then is this one who sets himself up and opposes the, the Lord and oppresses the people of God. And so we see then in our confession listing the Pope as that Antichrist is because he claims, that is the Pope, divisible headship of the church as Christ's vice-regent upon this earth, or elsewhere that he is Pontifex Maximus, or the big bridge between God and man, that claims in this way to this headship are not only false, but they're blasphemous, because he inserts himself between the church and Christ. What is that but to say that he is another Christ, In this way, we'd say the Pope is not the head of the church in any sense. We think that what I'm saying is merely hyperbole. Here's the Catholic Catechism, 882, verbatim. It says, quote, "...the Pope, Bishop of Rome and Peter's successor, is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity, both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ... And as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church. A power which he can always exercise unhindered. They're saying he's the head of the church. That he resides over the entirety as the vicar of Christ on earth. And that he has supreme power over the entire church. That's a very different thing than what Christ is saying, as we've seen in other times, of giving authority to the church to exercise the keys of the kingdom, that sort of blasphemous statement that the Catholic Catechism makes, that the Pope, in this way, is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity of the whole company of the faithful. Who is that but Christ? And yet the Pope comes along and says that it's him. And they have, for centuries, stated such blasphemy. And so our confession in making that point is saying that if we look around the world of who is saying that they are this great exalted one, we'd have to say it's the Pope. That he is the one who does so to the greatest extent. Furthermore, not only does he make this claim, but he also has oppressed the true church. And that he does so at great lengths. We have seen that and rehearsed that in many other times. But that then, as we think about our text, that not only has he opposed and exalted himself, but he has taken his seat in the temple of God, a, a place that at one time held forth word and sacrament in a pure manner, where Peter himself, as history of the church will tell us, is, is martyred, along with Paul, that in this way that good church that they left has been completely eviscerated by the Pope. And yet he sets himself up there as the supreme head, receiving worship, etc., from those who believe that they are doing what Christ would have them do. Or as it says in verse 11, those who have been deluded and that they believe what is false. In this way, then, we can understand, hopefully, somewhat, of why our confession is listing the Pope as the Antichrist, that man of sin, they're making that point uh, because uh, the, the Pope, uh, it really is that particular figure. Of course, there's a variety of other historical reasons that there's real fear even in England at the time our confession is written. Uh, they've recently had a, a turnover from Charles II to James II. Uh, James II was uh, married to a, had uh, become Catholic again. And the fear was that he was going to impose it upon the entire nation. And so making this claim that the Pope is that Antichrist, that man of sin, is in many ways uh, reflective of that. But again, that's just simply uh, normal uh, sort of boilerplate stuff for the Protestants. So our confession is stating that the Pope is that Antichrist, is saying that he is the That in him, the location of opposition to Christ is found, and that he oppresses the congregation in a way that uh, no one else does. Uh, You are interested in other people that they would consider. You can look at Calvin or Luther or others who talk at great length about how Muhammad would be another option, uh, but they see him as a lesser option, and they talk about that for their reasons. Now, in all of that, as we think about our confession of faith and about Antichrist, seeing of, uh, not only of what is Antichrist, how to identify him, where to find him, uh, not only who he is, but why is our confession saying these things, it would be important for us to be able to rightly know Christ, that we would so know him that we would only worship him, and that we would discern between what he has commanded us and those commandments of men that others bring along, as Antichrist being introduced into local congregations. And that we would in this way then be able to see that indeed the Pope is that Antichrist, uh, that man of sin. If you'd like to talk more about that offline, I'd be happy to do so. Uh, but again, the the statement that the Pope is that Antichrist, that man of sin, is more of an ecclesiastical commitment rather than an eschatological commitment. And hopefully that helps in some way, because if you read much of the discussion today, it's almost exclusively related to, is the Pope really the, the end times uh, man of sin? And I think even then, those authors of our confession would have said, uh, they that's uh, not certain, because we're not there at this time. However, uh, they were very certain that if Christ was to return in their day, that the Pope truly would be that Antichrist, that man of sin. So there might be a distinction without a difference. But in that way, we see that this one that we are looking to, that is Christ, is the one that we must rightly understand and know, that we can discern between Christ and Antichrist, unless we be afraid that we will not be able to do so. Notice uh, the, the words that Paul states to the Thessalonians at the end of our passage. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. Verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So Christ then, in the building of his church, loses not a single one of those that have been given to him by the Father. So if you are in Christ today, you need not be afraid of Antichrist coming along and sweeping you away with him. Additionally, not only that, but we see that we are then to stand firm in these things that have been delivered to us. So it is important for us to consider and look at these things and ask the Lord to give us grace that we might rightly discern not only between Christ and Antichrist, but also to consider reflectively of why we are doing any given one thing. Is it something that's truly commanded of us by Christ? And I think that's especially true as a second sort of thing to consider for those that are in authority, whether it be within the church or within the home, about why are we doing certain things? Uh, Is it something that's actually been commanded by Christ, either explicitly, as in chapter and verse, or by example and if these things are not so, then we need to ask, why are we doing them? Perhaps it's just pragmatics. Uh, there's no chapter and verse that we need to have service at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, but it's a good way to order ourselves to have. And yet there are others that would say that we need to, for instance, as those in the time of the writing of our confession would say, that we need to come and to kneel to receive Holy Communion. Again, it's not found anywhere in the scriptures, and that would be an introduction of Antichrist. And so, as we're in authority for those who are, and insofar as we are, that we would reflect upon why we're doing what we're doing and ask the Lord that we would not go away from what the Lord has told us, but rather that we would be happy and would be content with what we have already received. Even as it had said in verse 15 of Second Thessalonians 2, to hold fast to the traditions which you were taught. That we're not in this way innovators, but rather we are holding fast to what has been delivered to us. And we need God's grace that we could do that, whether in the home or in the congregation. And thirdly, then, collectively, as we consider these things to truly ascertain of why we are doing certain things and to seek in all that we do, to be conformed to the mind of Christ, because he truly is the one who has bought us by his blood, who has caused the church to be made his glorious bride and has permitted that you and I might be members of it and that he has granted that we might have all manner of liberty and privilege in his congregation that we might, until that day, until he returns, be busy about the things he has granted to us and doing so for his glory and our good. And that as we come into contact with those who would oppose the Lord, that we would stand firm against them And that we would not be dismayed. In this way then he says to not uh, be uh, quickly shaken. Verse 2 of our section. We would not be shaken when we come into trouble in this world. But rather that we would see that nothing unusual has occurred. But rather that which our master suffered before us we also will bear of the same. So let us ask him that he would grant us his grace that we might stand firm and that he would all the more cause us to be made mature in Christ Jesus. So in conclusion, we've seen something of what our confession speaks of, of the Pope as the Antichrist, that man of sin, as the one who seeks to replace Christ as the head of the church. And in this way, our confession rightly identifies him as that locus of opposition to Christ on this earth. Let us in this way not only uh, see and to, to mark and to avoid but also that we would take great care to ourselves to so uh, cling to Christ, uh, that we would long to only do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And as we are in error, to ask the Lord for His grace, that we might all the more confess, of our, confess our sin, repent of it, and be all the more conformed to His mind. So as we consider these things, we need not be afraid, as so many of us may have been growing up, In the days of the left-behind books, that we may more in all seriousness look to make sure uh, that we are following after the Lord to the praise of the glory of his name. Let us pray. Father, we would ask that as we walk before you privately and corporately as well, we would ask that you would cause us all the more to know the richness of your mercy and your Son. We would pray, Lord, that you would keep us from anything that would go against what you have commanded and that you would cause us to sow hate and detest that which is antichrist, and that we would cling to your Son. We ask, Lord, that you would add these things unto us by the power of your Holy Spirit, knowing that you are willing and able to add all these things unto us for the sake of your Son. In whose name we pray. Amen.